All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Hey, if you didn't pick up the hymn by the door, we'll need that hymn, because before we split up, we're just going to quick sing those first, well, the first and the fifth stanza. Who all needs a hymn if you're sitting at a table? Just raise your hand. We'll have people bring you hymns. Sophie, can you please grab some extra hymns? Bring two right to this table. Please. Right here. Thank you, Sophie. You're a peach. Okay, let's quick sing this. Blessed beasts of Christendom, in image manifest, the perfect signs till he shall come, of Christ our Lord the blessed. May beasts and Christians praises be to Father and to Son and to the Spirit, one in three, true God till ages run. Good. Now, before we split up, this is just a reminder, there's some more coloring pages of some of the beasts out in the narthex. If you're a child or if you're an adult, you're welcome to color those. And if you haven't done one already, you've got nothing to lose by taking one home and coloring it because the winners do get prizes, not just bragging rights. So it's better than being the best in midweek. <laughs> okay, so. If you haven't done one, pick up a coloring page. Adults can do it too. And uh, color it and bring it back tomorrow night. All right. Kids, you can go out. Adults, you can stay. And you know the game. If you want to eat, then eat. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of drink. So uh, help yourselves. It's not rude to eat while I talk. I don't care. If I could eat, I would. All right. So before we jump in here and play a little bit of catch up, <laughs> do you have any questions about anything from last night? The fish? Any questions about the fish? Or any questions about the lamb? <laughs> that was all of it. <laughs> yeah, here. Uh, it's, so this is a good opportunity for me to advertise the fact that I am recording these like I would do every time. Uh, so these, all of these classes are up on the podcast too. So you can listen to the fullness of it there, but I'll give you the, the, the quick Cliff Notes version. Um, in Greek, fish is ichthus. And ichthus starts with the same two letters as 
Jesus Christ. An I and an X is what they look like. Uh, but the letters of ichthus are also, when you spell them out, it's Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. So the fish then, because of its name, ichthus, becomes associated with Christ. It's also, I'll do this, this again. Oh, because you don't get this on the recording. When you draw two circles and you put them together and then you take the intersection, it's the fish. And, and that's the intersection of God and man because Jesus is fully God and fully man. So that's where the shape of the fish comes from, which just ties into ichthus from the Greek language. It's a little bit of a play on words, Jesus Christ and the fish. And then we looked at some, some scripture that talked about uh, what it means for Jesus to be the fish. And there's the great quote from the church father Tertullian that says, all Christians are little fishes and we're made fishes by water, and we can't live apart from water because we're fishes, which is baptismal language. In fact, I didn't say this last night, but I'll say it tonight. The citation of where Tertullian writes that is actually in his work called On Baptism. And in the book On Baptism, he says, you're all little fishes because you, you were made fishes by water, and you live in water, and you can't live without water, which is baptism. So that's as, I mean, it took over half the time last night. <laughs> so if you want the full shebang, you can listen oh, back can to it. Which other? Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is also, you can draw the fish like this. You can draw the fish like that, too, because it's the combination of the letters. And then I'll, I'll draw it like it would be up there. So, and that's ichthus in Greek. So this symbol is all of the letters that spell ichthus superimposed on top of each other. So then often you see this wheel in Christian imagery because it's the letters that spell ichthus, which is the fish, which is Christ. And here's another thing that I'll tell you. Um, in Ezekiel, which we will look at, tomorrow night, Ezekiel sees the throne of God and the wheel. And there's the great big wheel. So that, you know, the wheel ties into Christianity there too. And in fact, uh, I think it's thrones, the kind of angel is the, whoops, that was bad of me, is depicted as a wheel with eyes and wings. So then, you, then there's the wheel again. That's, a, that's bad. Yeah, it, yeah, I was a musician, not an artist. Okay. I was listening, there's a podcast that I like to listen to and they had a professor on and he was talking about theology and he said something about, oh yeah, yeah blah, 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 I'm associated with this institute and I teach here. And you can, there are some classes you can pay and you can subscribe to them and you can take his classes online. And he said, and if you subscribe and you take my class, then you get to see my famous stick figures. And I laughed because I resemble that comment. Okay, Is, do you need to copy this down or are you okay? 
I can leave it up for a little bit. Okay. Um, so we need to talk real fast about the lion. And um, why, why does the lion matter, would you think? There, there's one really big thing. Um, in Christian language, in Christian prayer, Yeah, the Lion of Judah. So, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Where does this term come from, Lion of Judah? I think it's Genesis 49. Let me check. Yeah, Genesis 49. What happens in Genesis 49? I don't expect you to know this. <laughs> There's a lot of throwaway stuff in the Bible. But it always happens that the throwaway stuff tends to be the most integral and interesting. So <clears throat> Genesis 49, that's when uh, Jacob dies. And uh, he gives blessings to his sons the 12 sons of Israel, they all get different specific blessings. And here's what he says about Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, uh, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And if you, if you are looking at this in your Bible, depending on what edition you have, I, you know, as always, I'll make a pitch for the New King James, and you'll see this in the New King James, is that the hymns are all capitalized because Jacob is, is not blessing Judah and talking about Judah. When he talks about the lion and the scepter and the kingly nature of Judah, he's talking about Christ. So it's actually a prophecy in the blessing of the Christ who is to come. So Christ is then called the Lion of Judah because he is the king. Okay? Why is a lion a king? Yeah, okay. That's good. That's actually what I was hoping you would say. The lion is called the king of the beasts. Why? No other predators. Why else? They're big. A lion is big. You don't really want to mess with a lion. Uh, yeah, unless you're Samson. And, uh, you know, Samson sort of had a tragic end, so... So he is a lion because the lion is the king. The lion is the king of the beasts. It is the biggest of the beasts, of those big carnivorous predatory beasts. It is the most powerful. It is the most regal. It has the loudest roar. 
It's kind of the biggest, the baddest, the best. And so the lion is this symbol of big, powerful, regal might. So it's the king. And saying then that Jesus is the lion is to say, one, he is the king, because the lion's the king. Two, he is the apex predator. That's important to say that he is a predator. Now think about that in terms of the Old Testament. I've talked about this a little bit before. What happens in the book of Exodus and throughout, you know, Judges? Or actually, not Judges, uh, Joshua. Joshua is a better one. What happens in Exodus and in Joshua? Those are kind of two books that go together because Joshua is the continuation of the Exodus, the ex-hodos on the way. Exodus is the journey from out of bondage into the promised land, but Exodus ends. And then Joshua is where it picks up because now they actually are going into the promised land in Joshua and you even have a mini Red Sea crossing because Moses takes them through the Red Sea and Joshua takes them through the Jordan. And again, they walk through on dry ground, but in the case of Joshua, you have the what that goes before them? The ark. The ark. Oh, and isn't it beautiful? So you think of Moses, and then you think of what causes the, the water to cease, and then you think of Joshua, and the priests go in, and they start walking into the Jordan carrying the ark, and the moment their feet touch the water, the water starts going away from the ark. And then you think of tying that into something like, I don't know, the calming of the, of the waves on the Sea of Galilee, commander of the waters, the word of God. So he, uh, what happens in, in those books, Exodus and Joshua? What's one of the big themes that you see? Conflict, war. <laughs> What, is the, what are the instructions that the Lord gives to the Israelites when they go into Jericho? Kill everyone. Think of the book of uh, 1 Samuel. Saul is the first king of Israel. Okay? And what happens to Saul pretty quickly. He's in the Lord's favor and then he falls out of the Lord's favor. And what is one of the really, really, really big naughty, naughty things that Saul does that makes the Lord angry with him? And I'll give you a hint, it's not, it is not the sacrifice at Shiloh. Is that what you were gonna say? Oh, okay. Well, never mind then. <laughs> what were you going to say? I was going to say that he, he kept the spoil from war for himself and he kept prisoners. He kept prisoners. That's the, that's the big thing. Yeah. He kept prisoners. They were supposed to go in and kill everybody. And he went in 
and he didn't. In fact, not only were they to kill everybody, they were to kill everything. Every living thing they were to kill. All the cows, all the sheep, all the goats, all the women and children and men, everything. When Israel went in, Israel was to be the only living thing that walked out of there. Not even an insect was supposed to walk out alive. And Saul didn't. He kept some of the animals, which he said, well, I thought that these would be a really good sacrifice because they're the best of the animals. The best of the pagan animals. Does the Lord want those? No, that's why he said to kill them. And they bring in, he brings in the king. Look, I even captured the king. He's my prisoner now. He said, that's not what I wanted. What happens to the king? Samuel. Yes, Samuel the prophet <laughs> picks up a sword and cuts his head off. Now I gotta do what you were supposed to do. That'd be like, you know, me telling you, now go out and do this. Go kill these people. And you coming back and saying, oh, look, uh, I thought that it would be better if I didn't. And me saying, no, I got it. And just doing it myself right in front of you. That's what Samuel the prophet does. Though so that's the big thing that, that causes Saul to fall out of favor because he's supposed to kill everybody because they are suffering divine wrath. They have rejected God. They have, they have harmed God's people. And you know, we, we use the term mama bear. And you can say that the reason why God executes judgment in that way, like literally execution, is Mama Bear. But the truth is, it's not Mama Bear, it's Daddy Lion. That's what he's doing. So now, let's think about C.S. Lewis for a minute. And uh, <laughs> I was told after class last night that Emma Olentalen said, oh, I can't wait to hear what Pastor said about the lion because I know he's going to talk about the Chronicles of Narnia and Aslan. And uh, we didn't get there. But she's right, because I am, because you can't get away from it. Here's, because here's the question, okay? Here's the question. And Lewis talks, he, wrote, he writes some, some articles, some uh, little things, essays about how he wrote, why he wrote. If, if you're going to write a whole thing where animals are the, the main creatures in this world, and you want Jesus to be an animal, well, what kind of animal do you make Jesus? What are you going to make him, a, a whale? Or, or a big fish? <laughs> what, are you, what are you gonna make him? Uh, I don't know. You can't make him a snake. Uh, I don't know, a cow? Little hedgehog Jesus? I mean, what are you gonna make him? You have to make him a lion. Why? Because the lion's the king. The lion's the king of the beasts. Okay? Um, there's a really great quote then, and I, I've used this before, but this is from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver says to the kids, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. All of that right there, that's the lion. He is not safe, 
Look what happens to Jericho and the pagan nations. Look what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. He is not safe. You are a friend of Jesus. You're not a buddy-buddy of Jesus. That's different. He is not safe, but he's good. And actually being good is better than being safe. Because goodness is going to fight for you. He's willing to take on danger for you. If he's safe, you go, oh, no, 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 I won't. I can't do that. Got to be safe. Mom told me not to go outside. No, Mike, don't, don't want to go get out in the dirt. I got to be safe. You know, there's the character in, uh, if you've ever read It by Stephen King. That was the reference, by the way. There's a character in Stephen King's book, It, one of the, little, one of the kids. If you don't know the book, it's about these kids who are fighting this monster. And then they, have, they don't do it all the way and they have to come back as adults. Okay, but so they're kids. And one of the kids uh, is always taking medicine and is always using his inhaler and he has all of these problems. And um, he picks up his prescription from the pharmacy at one point and, and the pharmacist accidentally says, oh yeah, here are your sugar pills. And he realizes none of what he's taking is real. And he's not sick at all. And his, his mother tells him that he's sick, so he thinks that he is sick. And the pharmacist and the doctors are done arguing with the mother, so they just prescribe sugar pills and compressed air. And he thinks that he is sick because his mom wants to keep him safe. See, so safety isn't necessarily a good thing. You are safe with Jesus, but not because Jesus is safe. You're safe with Jesus precisely because he is not safe. Because he is terrible to his enemies. That's what makes you safe because you're on his side. Because he is the lion. Now, here's a fun thing, though. What does Peter in his epistle call Satan? Or not call him, but liken him to. That's the difference. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like, like a roaring lion. Yeah, seeking someone to devour. So he doesn't say he is a lion. That's an important distinction because Jesus is the lion. Aslan is the lion. Jesus is the lion. Um, so Satan isn't a lion, but he masquerades as a lion. He behaves like a lion. And I, I had some pictures I was going to show, but I, I didn't get them on my computer in a way I could present them. So you'll have to, he, you have to just listen to my description. Okay, so here's a really good analogy. How many of you remember the 1960s Disney Robin Hood movie? Do you remember that movie where they were all animals? King Richard the Lionheart is what kind of animal? A lion. And he's big, he's got a big mane, he's broad in the chest and in the shoulders, and he comes and he demands respect when you see him. But Prince John is what kind of an animal? A lion with no mane, okay? And he's skinny and scrawny, and he walks around like this. <laughs> and he talks like this, too. Okay? That's the difference between Jesus and the devil. One of them's a real lion, the other one's an ape pretending to be a lion. And that brings me to the second image, which I 
I don't know if I've told you about this before, but this is in the last book of Narnia, which is my favorite, because it's apocalyptic. There's a donkey who finds a lion's skin and an ape tells him to put it on and pretend to be a lion and they convince the world that Aslan has come back because the donkey pretends to be a lion. The devil is an ape and actually that's the medieval theologians used this phrase the devil is God's ape. So it's like that, uh, that Harry Belafonte song. If you know, if you ever listen to Harry Belafonte. Uh, every little thing the monkey do too. Like everything that he did. I drink gin, monkey drink gin too. Everything he, the whole song is, I did this and then the monkey did it. I went out with this girl and then the monkey was stealing my dates. Like everything I do, the monkey is doing is right there. Uh, and in this case, theologically speaking, the devil is God's ape. He tries to do everything that God does, but it's mimicry. And in this case, mimicry is not flattery, and he doesn't do anything well. Think about um, Egypt. Oh, this is really cool. Uh, Moses goes to Egypt, right? And God says, hey, do these signs, and they'll see and they'll believe. We have to, we're going to have to move on from this really quickly. I thought you were going to be my... Oh, I I didn't, I didn't see. You have to scream at me or something next time. <laughs> yeah, throw something. Okay, so. They go to Egypt. He does the signs. And what do Pharaoh's magicians, the magoi, the magicians, what do they do? Trickery, fakery. Mm -mm. They don't do anything fake. That's what makes it so cool. That's why I asked the question, what do they do? They do what Moses did. That's, and how do they have the power to do what Moses does? Pardon me? Satan. Satan. It's, it's demonic power. There is power in the demonic. You know, when the devil whispers to you and says, I can give you power, he's not lying. He can give you power. He can give you more power than any man has, but he can never give you more power than God has. And if you stick with God, God will give you his power. In the end, you'll be more like God by waiting for God to do with you what he will. And that's why they, the serpent that Moses makes eats their serpents, because their serpents are serpents, but they're not as good. That's why they can do some of the things, but they reach a point where they say, we just can't keep up. We can't do this anymore. Because it's mimicry, but it's not good. It's poor quality. It's like, so, you know, I was homeschooled. Um, we, back in grade school, when my siblings were in grade school, my brother and my two sisters, uh, oh. was that to me? No. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna say, I thought you would like this story. Uh, <laughs> My, uh, my brother was very creative. We did, my mom had this Bible history curriculum, and part of it was, like, some of the homework was to do a craft, like to draw a picture or to make a diorama of this Bible story. And my brother was extremely creative. I was always envious of how creative and how talented he was as an artist. And he would do these elaborate things. But what you would find was there were three identical assignments that 
each had a step down in quality because my brother would create the masterpiece and my sister would mimic it and my other sister would mimic the other sister. So you had the one who copied the good thing but couldn't quite get it all the way and then the other who copied the not as good thing who also couldn't do it as well. So you had a good thing, a meh thing, and then a bad thing but they were all the same. And that's the way the devil works, is I'm going to try and do it like God, but I can't. I'm going, to, I'm going to look over and try and do it, right? So here's the other thing, okay? You are not lions, but you are made to be lions. How are you made to be lions? You are what you, what you eat. You want to be a lion? Eat a lion. That's why if you don't want to be unclean, don't eat unclean. You are what you eat. You eat a lion, you be a lion. Where do you eat a lion? Well, you don't eat any lion, you eat the lion. It's not like we go, hey, well, let's get some lion steaks. Wasn't there the, the dentist shot some lion? On a, you remember that? There was all that outrage, a dentist shot a lion on a safari hunt or something. The lion had a name, I don't remember. Leon, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so it's not like you come to church and say, hey, we're, you know, I'm on the grill, grilling up the lion. No, you have the lion, not a lion, the lion. You, right, you come to the Eucharist, you eat the lion. It's like eating the fish. The, the little fish eat the big fish. That was last night. But tonight is the cubs eat the lion, and then you become a lion. And I have this great quote. This is where we got to stop, because this is all catch-up still. Uh, John Chrysostom, in one of his homilies on the Gospel of John, he says this, let us then return from that table, that is the table of the Lord, the Eucharist. Let us return from there like lions breathing fire, having become terrible to the devil. So you go up there, Jesus puts himself in you, and shimbari shimbara, here I am, a lion breathing fire, and you roar, and the devil runs away from you. Because the lion's the king, and nobody messes with the lion. Okay, um, if you're curious, the name of the ape is Shift. Like shifty character and shift in paradigm. Moving something over. Oh, it's genius. All right, questions about lions. We've got to talk about birds. And I've got to make it to the end of the birds because tomorrow is so good. And also because Larry really wants to talk about pelicans and the pelican's at the end. <laughs> So, so we got to scoot through some of this, all right? So the dove. We're not going to look at all of these things. Um, there's one big one that we will. Uh, Genesis 1 describes the Holy Spirit. How? Do you remember? It's in the creation narrative, right there at the beginning. Yeah, hovering over the face of the water. Now, you can think about that in terms of like a mist. I think that's because he's spirit. Okay, so it's like the fog over the water. You know, like when you go on a fishing trip in Minnesota and you get up early in the morning and you go out to the lake and the lake has that fog over the top of the lake. That's like the spirit hovering over the face of the deep. Okay? But there's the language of hovering which then also points you to the spirit as being 
I don't want to say portable, but you know, maneuverable or effervescent. And then when the spirit appears physically, how does the spirit appear? Like a dove. Yeah, so that's what we're going to look at. Um, what is the importance of the dove? So let's look at Matthew chapter 3. Oh, let's start at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Now, given all of this that we've talked about here, why the Jordan? In the words of Nahum in the Syrian, <laughs> are there not better places to wash than the Jordan. Why? Because the Jordan is a? Yes, that's a very polite, I was going to say blank, 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 blank hole. <laughs> Did you? Yeah, you know like how in school, uh, my dad, so my dad knew this, he used to work with this, um, this guy <laughs> whose wife was an inner-city Milwaukee public school teacher. And she had in her class a young boy whose name was Shithid, spelled S-H-I-T-H-E-A-D. Shithid. She got in trouble the first day she had him in class and called roll. <laughs> That's true. I mean, that's funny, but it's not a joke. That's true. Excuse me, it's pronounced Shithid. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Jordan is a Shithol. <laughs> Come to VBS, it's family time. <laughs> hey, the Jordan's. It's nasty. It's dirty water. It's not a great place to go. Um, there, is there not a better place to wash? Yes. Absolutely, there is a better place, many better places to wash, but there's significance to the Jordan River. John doesn't baptize in the Jordan because it's, well, the best thing around. There is salvific significance to the Jordan, and Jesus goes there too. And it all ties into Exodus, and Joshua, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the entering into the Promised Land through water, and in particular, the water of the Jordan. And then the Jordan becomes this, the Jordan always points to baptism. So when you, you know, when people come to the font here to be baptized, they are being baptized in the Jordan River because all of the water that ever is sanctified in every baptismal font is the water that rolls down Jesus' back when he gets up out of the water of the Jordan. And I'll let you in on a little secret, too. I brought back water from the Jordan in a little jar. And just about every time we have a baptism, 
I put one drop into the font. And nobody knows that because I don't make a big deal about it. But when you know, it becomes kind of a special thing. Because is there not a better place to be baptized? No. Why? Because Jesus was baptized there. But it is very dirty. <laughs> it has been filtered many times. I hope I didn't filter the holy out of it. <laughs> okay, so he goes to the Jordan to be baptized. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? True or false? True or false? I need to be baptized by you. True, yeah. He also says, I, um, he's, you know, this one who comes after me is so much greater than I that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his <laughs> sandal. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. And I love that because he doesn't say it's, it's for me. It says for us. Baptism is something received. You can't baptize yourself. Someone has to do it for you. Uh, someone has to do it to you. Excuse me. So um, we are fulfilling all righteousness because I am being baptized into the sins of the world. And this is a really important thing to remember about Jesus' baptism. It's not, like, the, where is the law in the covenant that says you must be baptized? There isn't one. But then Jesus says, now baptize. Make disciples by baptizing. Jesus makes a big deal about baptism. And this is kind of where it begins with his baptism in the Jordan because what do you get when you go to baptism? You get a, what does St. Paul say in Titus chapter 3? That's a catechism. He saved us through the washing. the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So you go into baptism to get a washing. So your hope is that you go down dirty and you come out clean. But Jesus' baptism is the opposite because Jesus goes in clean and comes out dirty. And in a sense, time doesn't really work the way that you think that it works or the way that you perceive it works because your baptism in this sense happens exactly at the same time that Jesus' baptism happens. You're both going in, but you're going opposite directions and you cross each other in the water because you go in and you know, like when you... I don't know, when you soak your feet in the tub or something after you've been out and you see the dirt kind of, and it kind of like floats off your feet and starts to fill and the water starts to get that gray color. Or like when, you, when, you, when your kids have been out playing, you know, outside or in the woods or whatever all day and you pick them up and you put them in the tub and then the water's that nasty brown gray. That's how you know it's been a good summer is when the bath water's brown gray, okay? Um, that's what happens to you in your baptism. But the water doesn't go down the drain. Jesus goes in clean and he is like a big sponge. And you go into the water and the water gets dirty and you come out clean and Jesus goes into the water while you're in there and the dirt that comes off of you and starts to dissipate into the water gets soaked up into him. He comes out on the other side, on the wrong side, dirty. You come out on the right side, clean. That's baptism. 
When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the, the dove that hovers over the waters now appears at the waters of baptism, descending like a dove. Why doesn't he just descend like a cloud or, you know, in that sort of like a mist? Why, did, why is it a dove? Well, think about politics for a minute. Not too hard. But what's the deal with a dove in politics? Peace. Peace, yeah. Where does that come from? Ark. Pardon me? The ark. the ark, right. Because the dove is the, the bird that goes out and says, now the wrath of God has gone away. So when the Spirit descends like a dove, there is once again in water, hovering over the face of the deep, the proclamation of divine mercy, the abatement of wrath. The Spirit is there. There is no wrath. Now things are good. Um, there's another thing about the dove that's worth mentioning, okay? Um, okay, oh boy, in Leviticus 14, I'm going to turn to this just really quickly. Leviticus is actually a really good book of the Bible, but it's also a difficult book of the Bible to get through because it's all, it's, you know, the, the code of Levitical law. But, but Levitical law is important for you to read because you don't actually understand Jesus if you don't understand the priesthood and the law. The Levitical law in particular, which is all the, all the requirements about who gets to be a priest, what does a priest do, and then here are the things that the priest does, mainly the different sacrifices, and why do they do the sacrifices, and what kind of things are to be sacrificed, and why. And here are the penalties for trespass against the law. And here, So all of that's really important because you don't really understand so much about Jesus and the, you know, like John says, what about, what kind of garment does Jesus wear? That's why they cast lots for it doesn't have a seam, a, a, a garment woven without seam. So they have to cast lots for it because they don't want to rip it, because if they rip it, they wreck it. If they, if they tear it into equal pieces, then you can't even sell it because it's ruined. Because um, they're not going to wear it, they're going to sell it. They want to make some money off of it, put it on Facebook Marketplace. And um, <laughs> so uh, he's got this one, one uh, piece of clothing woven. But why does that matter? Because that's the kind of garment the priest wears. The priest who goes to make the sacrifice according to Levitical law wears the garment specially woven with no seam, which ties into Jesus being the beginning and the end but having no beginning himself, eternal. Okay, so here in Leviticus 14, uh, 21 and 22, just a, just a quick little thing. If he is too poor and cannot afford it, that is the lamb or, an, or a bull, 
Then he shall take one male lamb as a trespass offering to be waived to make atonement for him, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering, a log of oil, and two turtle doves or two young pigeons, such as he is able to afford. And then if you take that, remember that, pigeons, pigeons, doves, pigeons, and you jump to Luke 2, And that's the purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus at the temple. Candlemas, February 2nd, in the liturgical year. Lock that away for trivia night. Uh, here we go, 22. Now, when the days of her, that is Mary's, purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem and presented him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Which tells you one thing about Mary and Joseph, if they're offering turtle doves, they are poor. They're too poor. So they have the doves instead. But that's really important that Jesus the Christ, the Prince of Peace, is atoned for in the temple with the dove that is the bird of peace. Which is what the poor offer. And Jesus is the one that in the Magnificat, Mary says what about the poor? Raises up the poor and casts down the mighty from their thrones. He is here for the poor, and he brings peace to them, and it's proclaimed by the dove. So the dove becomes the symbol of the spirit. The dove is the symbol that represents the peace, and the spirit brings that peace. Okay? Uh, and then it also represents the grace of God. Is that an alarm, or is that? <laughs> That's a little too much liberty. <laughs> now I forgot what I was saying. I, mean, I was going to say, that's your strategy. You did a good job. Uh, yeah, so um, it's, the, it's the animal, the, the uh, atonement animal for the poor. And then when the dove comes, the dove becomes representative of uh, Jesus coming to those who are poor in spirit and making them rich and the acknowledgement that no matter how rich we are in this life, each of us is still poor. Uh, and then the other thing about the spirit is that just like the dove goes out from the ark and then delivers the gifts, you know, brings back the branch, the, uh, the spirit of Jesus distributes the gifts of Jesus. Jesus wins the gifts, but who gives the gifts that Jesus wins? The spirit. That's why Jesus sends, I'm just going to set this. That's why Jesus sends the spirit when he ascends, because everything that I've won, I go to the Father and claim, hey, I win these now. Now they belong to me. And the Father says, I've given to you all things in heaven and on earth. And Jesus says, I got them. I won them. Now the prince of this world doesn't own them. I do. And the Lord says, here's your inheritance. And he turns around and gives them to the Spirit and says, fly down there and give it to my people. 
So in the earliest Eucharistic liturgies too, what you would find was that there was a part of the Eucharistic liturgy which we don't have anymore, and actually we, uh, I think we should, but that's me being an early church scholar. <laughs> and, and part of that is right before they would speak the verba, the words of institution, it was a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Christ, send your Holy Spirit down into this place so that the Spirit may give us through this bread and wine the gifts of your body and blood. And then they would speak the words of the verba, and then they would say, it's the word that makes the sacrament that is delivered by the Spirit, because the Spirit delivers the gifts. And then we can talk about the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit, uh, which are the seven sacraments. I thought more people would react to that. Well, never mind. Okay. Um, anyway, okay. Questions about the dove. Okay, on to Mother Hen. Now, one of the evening psalms, and you'll see in the, if you look in the uh, service folder for Compline, tomorrow night's psalm is actually Psalm 91. Now that's, uh, that's one of the evening psalms that is traditionally prayed right before you go to bed. So we're going to look at that really quickly. What am I doing? Okay, Psalm 91. And the first four verses of Psalm 91 are very important. Okay, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers or pinions, I think the ESV has it translated as pinions, and under his wings you shall take refuge. Who is the he? Under his wings you will find refuge. Who is he? Jesus. Yes. Jesus is the he. So Jesus has wings, according to the psalm. And so this image of mother hen and her chicks, what does a mother hen do with her chicks? Covers them up. She protects them. She gets them under her wings and you know, she fluffs herself out. Don't come over here and get in, get in here with me, little chicks. And she protects them by covering them with her wings. So the, the picture of the mother hen in her nest covering her brood, her chicks, that's an image of Christ. And this is really fascinating because it's a mother hen, but it's Jesus, the son of God the Father, who is depicted as the mother hen. Now you just have to stay with me for a minute and don't think that I'm feeding you the woke Kool-Aid here. I, I will explain all of this, but I want to get that picture started in your head here from Psalm 91. So then we jump into the New Testament to a very important place in Luke chapter 13. Now this is 
this is big, this chapter. And, and contextually, now we're going to look at um, the very end of, of Luke 13. Uh, I think, let's see, 31, yeah, 31 to 35. So that's, that's the very end of the chapter. But what comes beforehand is that he goes to, to, to the region of Jerusalem and he starts giving woe to the Pharisees. He, he chews them out and he tells them, you, you, you need to repent, you need to turn away from sins or you're going to die. Then he talks about the fig tree. The, I, I wish that I, you know, this was a Kodak moment, I wish I had the first time I taught this on the fig tree. Uh, the, the barren fig tree, the fig tree, it doesn't bear any fruit. And, and uh, the master says, cut it down and burn it up. There's that, and then there's the other fig tree moment. Do you know what the second fig tree moment is? This is just a parable. A guy planted a fig tree and he wanted it to bear fruit and it didn't grow fruit. And he waited a long time and the gardener said, hey, listen, just give it one more year. And he says, that's all it gets, one more year. And then if I come back and there's no fruit, I'm digging it up and I'm burning it up. That's the parable. The second fig tree incident, do you know what it is? Jonah. Hmm? Jonah. That's a broom tree. Ah. Yeah, come on, you don't know your trees? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a broom tree. You know, it's in the New Testament, yeah, with Jesus. There is this, I should have clarified, an incident with Jesus. And this, this, this one's a parable in Luke, but then the other one is not a parable, it's something that happened. Yeah, he was hungry and he wanted a fruit and it didn't have fruit and he cursed it and it shriveled up and died. Isn't that a little harsh for, you know, not wanting a fruit? And I think it even, I, th I could be wrong here, but I think it even says it's like it's not the fig season. It's like, I want figs out of season, but the tree's not giving them to me because it's out of season, so I curse the tree and it shrivels and it dies. But the point of that, and the point of this fig stuff is to say, you have to live in faith. You're, you're saved by grace through faith, but you have to live in it, which means works. Because he's going to come and he wants fruit, and if you don't have fruit, he cuts you down and throws you into the fire. He curses you, you shrivel up. That's the parable of the fig tree. So he's saying, look, you, you're, pretending, you're pretending to be faithful. So all of this, and then he talks about the spirit of infirmity, and then he talks about, hey, real faith is like the mustard seed. And, and the whole point of the mustard seed is that, <laughs> it says, if you had faith, and this is the thing with Jesus, if he begins something that says, if you had, he's not lining up to give you a compliment. If you had faith, that was even as small as a mustard seed, you could do all of these things. And then he kind of leaves it open-ended, but what is the conclusion? Can you do all of those things? Then your faith is not even as big as the mustard seed, is what Jesus says. Oh, you of little faith, a faithless generation, you don't even have enough faith to fill a mustard seed, is what he says. All of this, the leaven, and then he says the narrow way. The way to get to paradise is so narrow. And then,
On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, this is 31, get out and depart from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. That is to say, outside the region of Jerusalem. I, a, a prophet has to die in the holy city. So if I'm going to die, it has to be on Jerusalem turf, which he does. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And I love this language of brood. I don't like chicks. As a hen gathers her chicks. I don't know, maybe it's just because I didn't grow up with that translation, but there's something to me about brood that I like the brood. I want to gather my brood. So he says, go tell that fox. Herod is the fox. How I longed to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood. He is not saying, I am a hen. He's not saying, I am a mother. There's the big thing. Jesus is not a woman. Jesus is a man. God the Father is not non-binary. That was for you. There's a story behind that. Uh, that wasn't a rebuke. <laughs> uh, God is not non-binary. He is Father. He is not Father and Mother. You know, we have a whole a branch of Christians that pray to Mother God. Like, we aren't in ancient Greece anymore, friends. We don't have Gaia anymore. But Jesus is like a mother hen. And it's kind of the same way that Jesus is the lion. And I, I, I said that it's not that he's mama bear, he's daddy lion, but that idea that there's the instinctual act of protection of a mother for her child, that's the same kind of love that Jesus has. The love of a mother and the love of a father are both, they're, they're two sides of one coin, and that coin is God. God is the fullness of love. So he is like the mother hen who loves his chicks so much that he is going to gather them together to guard them and protect them and keep them safe and keep the fox away. Or in a certain sense, keep the beast that is like a prowling lion away from the hen house. I don't want them here. Now, there's another neat thing. Part of Compline, so we're doing, this is the Compline we're praying here is short and that's on purpose. The, the longer version of Compline also includes Psalm 17, hide me in the shadow of your wings. So you have all this language throughout the psalmody of being protected by the wings of God, hiding under the wings, and then Jesus says, how I long to gather you together just like a mother hen would gather up her brood under her wings to protect them. Uh, 
And you see the fulfillment of this, actually. Because the outstretched arms of Jesus, the wings that go out under which you rest securely, are seen where? On the cross. Think about that for a minute. Jesus brings peace that is delivered by the dove and he guards and protects and you hide under the shadow of his wings and you can't get under his wings if they're tucked in. His wings are out and they are open because they are opened on the cross. And that's where you reside in shelter and safety and in security under his wings, which is at the foot of the cross. In fact, there's also this really neat thing, this tie-in to the rainbow. Because it's more than just refracted light through the mist in the sky. This is how the early church viewed the rainbow. This is how early iconography depicted the rainbow because it's all attached to God's promise that I will never again in wrath send the waters of judgment to destroy the world. On what basis can God make that promise? He must send divine judgment to destroy the world. So on what basis can he deny in a sense, deny himself and tell you he won't by sending, by sending a sacrifice. It's all, you know, even from Genesis 3 on, everything has its roots in Jesus. So the, the ancient discussions of the rainbow, the ancient depictions of the rainbow were the colors... You know, here, okay, so here's the, the bow, because God says, I put my bow in the sky. Here's the bow. And this is how they depicted it. Christ on the bow, hanging in the sky, and Noah looks up and sees the promise of God, which is the promise of the Savior. It's like Jacob's dream, his vision. He puts his bow in the sky, and there it is, and that's the manifestation of the promise. Okay, this is all cool stuff. So that's the where you go to be under the wings of God is to the cross, where his wings are open and outstretched. The most common depiction that I've seen of the Ark of Covenant as the cherubim and seraphim. Yeah, yeah. The cherubim and the seraphim come together. Um, Boy, there was something really great I had just read about the cherubim and the seraphim. Oh, Isaiah. Isaiah. Think of Isaiah 6. And uh, he goes, he sees the courts of heaven. Holy, holy, holy. He sees all the angels. But where does it, you know, where do you really see the angels doing that? In the Holy of Holies. On the Ark of the Covenant, where God is. Oh, it's beautiful, beautiful. All right, the pelican, friend. <laughs> okay. And this is what he said to me, too. He said, where is the pelican in the Bible? He said, I, where are we going to find the pelican? Well, it might not be as straightforward as you hope. There's two places to look. 
And these are the two places from which the church derives the image of the pelican. And I can't bring it out here to show you, but I want you at some point to just walk into my office, my study, and help yourself. I mean, the door's unlocked right now. Tonight's the best time to do it. I have a big plaster pelican right on top of the, kind of the desk hutch. That is an original, that was an ordination present from my aunt and uncle. That was from a, a Catholic church in Milwaukee that was shut down and condemned and they tore the building down, but somebody went in and cut out all of the plaster designs and decorations in the church and then put them for sale at this consignment store, religious consignment store, and my aunt uh, and uncle got, they bought that pelican from the, from the consignment place and that was their gift to me uh, for ordination and that's in my office, so that came out of a church. Um, but go and look at it, it's beautiful. You can find, there are at least three pelicans in my office uh, that, that you can go and see and find. So the way uh, that, that particular design, now I told you uh, yesterday that the, the symbols, the, the depictions of the different beasts, there's kind of a, um, there are like guidelines about what, what they look like. So this is what they will always look like. The pelican is always kind of a circular thing. She has her wings out. Uh, her head is down. She's in the nest. And she has typically three chicks like that. And there's drops of blood going down and the chicks are doing that. And of course the pelican typically would have, you know, the halo. The, the nimbus, because it's, it's Christ, okay? So that's, that's kind of the motif of the pelican. And there are, there are two places where this comes from. And we'll find the first one is Psalm 102. And this motif is called, the full, the full name of it is the pelican in her piety. So when you look at it, uh, it's not just, ooh, there's the pelican, but the pelican in her piety. So Psalm 102, 1 to 7, real quick. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me. In the day that I call, answer me speedily. For my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass, so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. That's the only time in the Bible the word pelican appears. Um, at, right at the beginning of verse 6? Oh, it doesn't split it up into two? No, and then it says out. King James Version does. Yeah, good. King James, you can't really go wrong. Yeah, that's what it, sh that's what it should be. And I'm the authority, so you can take my word for it. <laughs> 
That's, I think, the better, I think that's the better translation, is the one that actually includes pelican. Some of the rationale for not including it is this. But pelicans don't live in the wilderness. And that actually, I do know, because I did a bunch of research, and that's what people said. Well, we'll translate it this way, because pelicans don't live in the wilderness, so that doesn't make sense. <sighs> that's not the way to translate. Okay, that's like, uh, well, anyway. Okay, so this is the one time that the actual word appears. And uh, there's, there's something to note about the Psalms. The Psalms are always, firstly, about Jesus. Now, they can be about other things, but they're always primarily about Jesus. And when you pray the Psalms, because you don't ever read them, you always pray them. When you pray the Psalms, it's Jesus speaking. Now, I guarantee you, if you've never thought about that, it'll completely rock your world the next time you go back through and start praying through the Psalms and realize, oh, wait a minute, Jesus is speaking these first and foremost. It says the Psalm of David, but David speaks secondarily because it's Christ who speaks. That's why Psalm 22 is so important because those are the actual words of Christ. And then he prays them on the cross, fulfilling his own words from the Psalm that's all about him. So the Psalms are about Jesus. They're the voice of Jesus. Jesus says, I am like a pelican. That's where we get the pelican in her piety. Well, what's the deal about the pelican? Uh, I'll tell you about that while you turn to John chapter uh, 19. Here's the thing about the pelican, okay? The pelican in her piety. There is a myth about the pelican. And the myth is that a mother pelican, when she see, if she sees that her chicks are starving and will die, and she cannot find food for them, will fly into her nest and will use her sharp beak to pierce her own side so that her blood will run into the nest, that her chicks will drink, and her chicks will live. That is the picture of Jesus. He is the pelican alone in the wilderness, which is crucifixion. I am abandoned. God forsakes God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I am alone like a pelican. Why am I like a pelican? Because my little chicklings, my brood, are here gathered under my wings where I wanted them right here at the cross, just like mother hen, but they are dying, and I need to give them life. And how do I give them life? John 18, 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. What is the foundation of the church? Blood and water. That's old, old theology. Blood and water are the foundations of the church. 
Jesus is the pelican alone in the wilderness outside of, and this is important too, he's outside of Jerusalem, in the wilderness. Who goes into the wilderness? Think about last night. Let me rephrase the question. Who is sent out into the wilderness? The scapegoat, the lamb. So Jesus is the pelican alone, forsaken, in the wilderness, fed to Azazel like the scapegoat was, whose side is pierced, and who feeds the chicks by the blood from her side. That's why that is my favorite symbol of the church. That's why I have so many pelicans in my office, because I love the symbol. Now, there's two things I want to read to you. This is Thomas Aquinas. If you don't know Thomas Aquinas, he is uh, the greatest philosopher that ever lived, is what they call him. He is one of the five doctors, like pillars of the church. Aquinas is big, big, big time theologian. Um, Roman Catholic philosopher, he wrote the Summa Theologica, the, the sum of all theology, everything. And it's in a bunch of volumes. I have them. You, you can look at them if you want. Um, they're interesting reading if you are a theologian. If you're not a theologian, they're pretty dry. And they look like lawyer books. You know, when you go to the... Oh, actually, I guess I'm not going to assume that you've been in the lawyer's office. And I guess I hope that you haven't. <laughs> but, you know, when you watch Law and Order, and, the, and you know, they've got all those books that look exactly the same... That's what his books look like as they're published, just these big, giant blue books, nondescript, but they're really beautiful. So he has this hymn uh, called the Adoro Te Devote. You we adore and, uh, and you know, sing praise. We devote ourselves to you. And one of the stanzas, and actually, I think that that's in our hymnal. I, th I think. Um, but it's a Gregorian chant hymn from way, way back. And here's, a, this is a translation of one of the stanzas that he wrote, Lord Jesus, good pelican, clean me, the unclean, with your blood, one drop of which can heal the entire world of all its sins. That's sort of like the old, choke, uh, the old joke, you know, Chuck Norris, he, uh, his tears can cure cancer but we still have cancer because Chuck Norris never cries. <laughs> one drop of Chuck Norris tears can cure cancer, but one drop of Jesus' blood, the blood of the good pelican, can forgive the sins of the whole world. And that actually draws on Another myth about the pelican. Now, this is from a really neat little book called The Physiologus. And actually, I'll write it up here for you. Um, I'll leave that there. This is in case you want to buy it. So there, uh, you can actually get it pretty cheap. I think, we, I think we'll get a copy of it for the library. One for me, because I want one for myself. And then we'll buy a second copy to put in the library. Just so you can look it up. It's, it's this book. Now, this is from the second century. Medieval theologians use this all the time, the physiologists. Let me make sure I get it right. Physiologists. 
if you want a copy of it. I don't think it's very long, and I don't think it's very expensive. It wasn't when I looked. And it's fascinating, actually. And you might even be able to find it free online. Um, I think that there are some scans of some of the things. You can read it, like Project Gutenberg or something like that. Um, but anyway, so this is from the second century. And it's this collection of just what you would expect. The f uh, I'll use a different color so it's easier to see. So, you know, I was, I said this before, I was homeschooled. One of the things that we did, don't tell my mother, but I hated being homeschooled. She already knows. <laughs> um, but, so this is one thing I, I actually, as an adult, think was really, really, really good. We did this thing called Classical Roots Vocabulary, which was a whole curriculum of vocabulary, learning the words of the English language, but from their Greek and Latin roots. Is that what you English from the roots up? Is that what you Pardon me? Did you use English from the roots up? That's not the book you're talking no, about. No, it's called Classical Roots. Okay. Classical Roots Vocabulary. And uh, I don't know if it's still in print or what, but that's what we used. It was, there was a kind of a bluish book, and then there was a purple book, too. I, re I remember that. But... Um, it was great because it explained a lot of our English words from, from the roots, so you can, you can sort of guess what words mean because you see the roots. So, logos, that's word, yeah, or ology, logos, that's study of. So actually, I should have, di I should have divided it here. I'm sorry. Forget it. Okay, so there's the study and the physio, the physis. We'll say form. Study of the form. So the physiologus is this book that studies the physical characteristics and attributes of animals from the second century, but talks about them in terms of their myth. Oh, it's so cool. And it's so cool that it comes from the second century because there's a lot of like medieval bestiaries, which are super fun to read. Uh, if you like fairy tales, so much of that kind of stuff comes from the medieval bestiaries. But this, is, this predates all of it. Second century. And there's all kinds of manuscript evidence. This is real. This is a real deal. So here's what the physiologist says about the pelican. It is an exceeding lover of its young. Mm. By the way, this was written by a Christian. It's a Christian document. Should have said that. If the pelican brings forth young and the little ones grow, they take to striking their parents in the face. We know how that goes. <laughs> the parents, however, hitting back, kill their young ones. And then, moved by compassion, they weep over them for three days, lamenting over those whom they killed. On the third day, their mother strikes her side and spills her own blood over their dead bodies, and the blood itself awakens them from death. 
Isn't that cool? It's so cool. It's so beautiful. It's a picture of Christ. The chicks have died. Divine wrath has come. And after three days, I will raise them up. And how will I do that? By my blood. The blood of Jesus wakes up the dead. There's the resurrection. There's the crucifixion. That's everything. And then how do those who are raised continue to live? This is taking both of the two pelican myths and putting them together. You're raised by the blood, and how do you live? By the blood. Okay, questions. I will tell you this, we have more from the physiologist tomorrow. So can it be said that Christ is on the cross? Yes. His wings are out, and he brings all of us under it, and eventually there will be a judgment. Because he saves. Uh, there, there will be a judgment. The, as he wings out and brings them all under him. Yes. Well, there, you know, uh, there'll come a time when that expression about Jerusalem is a lament over the world, how I long to gather you all under my wing and you would not. That's important too. I was the one calling you. I was the one trying to get, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't stay. You, you ran away. And so that's on the last day. It's like C.S. Lewis says, there will be two people when Christ comes again to judge, the people who say, thy will be done, and to translate it into this language, the people who said, yes, mother, and came and went under the wing, or those who said, no mother, and who ran away to play more, and then it became dark and the door was closed. Uh, that's why Jesus is the one who returns to judge the living and the dead, not the Father, because divine judgment from the Father has already po been poured out on the cross. So Jesus is the one who comes to claim his own, and it's like the wedding banquet. The banquet's already paid for, but if you don't want to come in, then you stay out there and then the door gets closed and then you, then you don't know what you're missing. But yes, yeah. All right, any more questions? Okay, we'll go, we'll pray Compline. Uh, pick up a, a coloring sheet if you want. I'm not going to force you to do it, but there's more left over if you want to color a sheet and bring it in and maybe win a prize, do that. We'll go in and we'll pray Compline. Don't forget to bring your hymn sheet because you're going to need that. I don't have extras.